I don't think there's a single person in the world who works, who hasn't thought these last 16 months saying, hey, should I be working differently? Should I be going back to this, wake up in the morning, take the train in the morning, go to work, come back? So this moment of COVID has accelerated that change and caused everyone to pause and rethink how they work, why they work, and question the old models of employment. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. The way we work has changed forever, and highly skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top talent to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bodgis. Today, we proudly welcome Lena Nair. She is the first female and first Asian Chief Human Resources Officer of Unilever, the global Fortune 200 consumer packaged goods company behind some of the world's most beloved brands from Dove to Klondike to Seventh Generation. Lena is also the youngest member of the Unilever Leadership Executive, the committee of the senior most leaders in the company. Thanks for joining us today, Lena. Lovely to be here. So Unilever is trialing a lot of programs right now to give workers unprecedented flexibility that just might define the future of work. You've introduced a four-day workweek experiment in New Zealand. There's a Unilever UK program called U-Work, where people can work for fewer months a year than they normally do and still have job security. And there's also U-Renew, which allows workers to take a long-term sabbatical to get an education and still have their jobs that whole time. So my first question is, why are you conducting these experiments and what are you seeing so far? Great question. You know, I've always believed that the traditional models of employment have broken because they were designed for 100 years ago. But COVID has shown that to all of us. I don't think there's a single person in the world who works who hasn't thought these last 16 months saying, hey, should I be working differently? Should I be going back to this, wake up in the morning, take the train in the morning, go to work, come back five days a week, 40 weeks a year, without a break, 40 years of my life. So this moment of COVID has accelerated that change and caused everyone to pause and rethink how they work, why they work, and question the old models of employment. So Unilever has been ahead of the curve in thinking about how can we pioneer these new models of employment. Now, we don't know the answers like everybody else. So the best way to know the answers is to pilot an experiment. So we announced a pilot in New Zealand where the 90 people who work for us in New Zealand, it's not too many, 90 people in New Zealand. So I thought it's a nice small set of people to do the experiment for us, would try and work four-day working week for an entire year to help us understand what it takes to work in this way. And believe me, I didn't expect it to be front page news, which it became, because it is such a topical subject and people everywhere struggling with How do we work? What is a hybrid way of working? How much flexibility do we have? When do I go to office? What do I do differently? That this little experiment for 90 people in Unilever in New Zealand became world news. 
So it's they, they're doing well. It's going well. We need another six or nine months to determine how it's working for the business. The premise is simple. You work 100% of the work that you're allocated to. You get 100% of your salary, but you try and do it in 80% of the time available to you. Because clearly in the last 100 years, with all the tools, technology, emails, teams and everything at our disposal, surely our productivity should be should have gone up and we should be able to do work in less time. See, today's model is you either work full-time for a company, so it's full-time bells and whistles, you sign long employment contracts, you get loads of benefits, medical, health, pension, or you become a gig worker where you sort of work flexible hours, you work for yourself, you take projects, but you have no security. You don't know whether the paycheck's coming month to month. So what you work does, it combines these two. It gives you flexibility with security. So what we tell our people is you need to commit only six weeks to a max of six months, a minimum of six weeks to a max of six months of working on Unilever staff. The rest of the time, you can do what you want. You can roam around the world. You can look after your kids. You can plan for your retirement. But it gives you security because we give you an employment contract from Unilever You get some amount of medical, pension, all the benefits that makes you feel a lot more secure about your prospects. So it combines this flexibility and security. I'm encouraging companies everywhere to experiment, to try, because nobody knows the answers. But together, if we experiment, we might find something that makes sense for people and for businesses everywhere. about you renew so that's the program that's allowing people to get an education but they still have their job security what can you tell us about that i fundamentally think the way we think of education in careers is broken imagine what you learn at 20 years old or 21 years old and you graduate and then we expect you to build your entire career based on what you learned in those three or four years at university which doesn't make sense the half-life of a skill is two and a half three years So what we are saying, what we are encouraging people to do is become lifelong learners. So the model of I learn that I get recruited and then I work for many years and then I resign or retire and go is broken. Now the model is you join a company, you take a break when you think you need to learn something new. So what you renew says is, hey, we're willing to give you the time off to learn and we're willing to give you some money to learn the things that you care about or the things you want to pivot to or the things that will make you better at the job you're doing. And you put some of your own money too, because you need to be committed to this and come back in a new job, new shape, new skill that you want to do. So again, it gives people the flexibility to learn while giving them the security that they still have a job with Unilever. They're not, they don't have to worry about now, where do I go and find a job after I've learned this new skill? So those are just just a few examples. We have something like 10 or 12 models we're experimenting with in different parts of the world. But the fundamental premise is gives the flexibility that employees are seeking with the security they're seeking with business productivity and business benefit so that both business and people win. That makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) And I can't wait to hear the results of these experiments because I am eager to see this roll out to other countries. I know that this would be well-received in the States. So I want to talk about something you had posted recently on LinkedIn, which was, We already had flexible and agile working practices at Unilever, but we are embracing that even more. 
we're still developing our plan. Now, I've talked to the chief people officer of Walmart and the chief human resources officer of Verizon about their post-pandemic workplace and workforce plans. What more can you tell us about how Unilever is imagining what will happen next? A great question. I do think this is a moment of reinvention and reimagination for leaders, for HR people. If we waste it, it'll be sad. If we go back to doing everything as we did before 2019, that'd be sad. We wouldn't have learned any lessons from this COVID. Now, one of the things I've learned is that one size doesn't fit all, especially in my job where we have people working in 190 countries, one size doesn't fit all. To give you some numbers, we have 265 offices across the world in these 190 countries. Only 14 have opened up. The rest want to open up, but they can't because the conditions are not there. The health statistics are not there. The vaccinations haven't been done. So we have to keep in mind that we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. We can't assume everyone's having the same experience. They're not. What we have done is we have developed five hybrid working principles that we've started talking about to help people come back to work. The first thing we've said is work is what you do, not where you go to. So we're saying you will have flexibility. We'd expect you to come into work maybe minimum 40% of your time, but how you do that is up to you. But we do expect to see people in office because how will culture be built? Offices are the place for co-creation, for celebration, for collaboration, for commiseration when you have a bad day. So you don't want to lose that social capital that comes from office, but you have to be flexible. People don't need to be there all the time. The second important principle is scheduling your time in office is a team sport. You can't say, oh my God, Monday is the best days for me. I'm going every Monday. You've got, it's a team sport. You want to come in with your teams. The third principle we've spoken about is ensure a reasonable commute so that you can come into office when you need to. Our fourth is you will be properly supported and equipped with the tools for well-being and for work productivity, whether you're in office or at home, we will make sure you're fully supported. I mean, you should see my little office here. I mean, I've got studio lights, I've got monitors, I've got all sorts of things here. So it's really ensuring people can have the same productivity whether they are in home or in office. And we've spoken about making travel really count. You know, use it to genuinely meet people where it counts, you know, not just a general review, but where the big strategic decisions being taken, going to the frontline meeting consumers. And the most important principle, the plus one of all of this is we reserve the right to change all of this if the time changes. So I think no company should be taking any extreme position. Oh, you have to come into office all five days a week and we don't care how. Or we don't care at all. Offices are crazy. We don't need them at all. I think either of these extremes, we should be careful about taking these extreme positions. I would urge all of us as employees, as HR leaders, as business leaders, to look for a win-win combination that combines flexibility, that combines the best of what we've learned during these 16, 18 months with the flexibility and security that people are looking for. So make it work for business, make it work for people. And if we listen to our people, we'll be able to find ways to make them work. And don't freeze your position too early. We haven't seen the end of this yet. These are all impressive lessons that you have taken from the pandemic. And I've seen you say that Unilever moved very quickly during the pandemic and that agility extended to many different programs. I'm wondering, was there anything that moved too quickly and you had to slow it down? Or just what was a key lesson that you took from the pandemic? When I look back, 
you know, I feel that one of the things I would have done differently is I would have focused on a lot more gritty optimism. You know, as a leader and many senior leaders, we were so anxious to say that there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's coming. It's coming. We were always saying, oh, you know, it's a crisis. It's finishing. It's coming. Giving people the sense that it was a crisis and they would work hard and somehow get through this. And then everything would magically go. And we've changed the language to now say COVID is endemic. It's a part of our lives. It's not a crisis. It's endemic. We have to learn to live with it. I think in hindsight, I should have, I along with other senior leaders, should have moved quicker to realize that the crisis language and light at the end of the journal and everyone sort of get there and roll up your sleeves and we're going to get through this may not have been the way. And a more uh, optimistic message with more grit and reality in it may have been better. From the beginning saying, we don't know how long it's going to take. It might take months. It might take years. That's one of my reflections. That's a really introspective one that I think all leaders can learn from for future, I'm putting it in air quotes, crises, because you know nobody wants to hear they're in a crisis. They want to look for that light at the end of the tunnel, and they want to know how are we dealing with this day to day. So thank you for sharing that lesson. Speaking of handling things in the future, Unilever wants all its employees to have a future fit skill set by 2025. What is a future fit skill set and how are you ensuring that that goal is met? Meredith, I am so proud that as a company, we went out and we made some audacious commitments. We said we would ensure everybody in our ecosystem would earn a living wage. An ecosystem, I promise you, we're still counting, but it's something like 10 million families. So by one commitment, we're going to touch the lives of 10 million families. The second commitment we made was in the area of diversity and inclusion, where we said we'd spend at least $2 billion of our money on suppliers who come from underrepresented categories. And the third commitment was all to our employees, that we would ensure everyone has a future fit skill set by 2025, and that everybody would have access to a pioneering employment model so that they can choose whether they want a four-day week or you renew or you work, or they would have the choice. They might decide, I don't want to do it. I want to work as I've normally done, and that's okay. And that we would skill 10 million young people to have the skills to prepare them for the future work. And I'm so excited we made these commitments externally because it puts a moral pressure on us to make these commitments a reality. A future fit skill set comes from a future fit plan, which is to build the skills that you've got to know what you want to build. So there are four paths to a future fit plan. First is your sense of purpose. I think we're the only company of our size and scale that is putting 150,000 people through Discover Your Purpose workshops. Because we believe if you know your purpose, it makes you a better leader, a better manager. You bind to the Unilever sustainability vision a lot better. London School of Business came and studied 3,000 people who've been through those workshops. And they've come and told us that people who are discovering their purpose and who feel they can live it at work are 45% more likely to be satisfied, five times more likely to be able to say, I'm in charge of my own well-being and I know what to do and 92% more likely to put in discretionary effort to get their goals done. So it makes a huge difference, and that's why future fit skill set starts with a sense of purpose. Because what happens, a lot of the communication about the future and the fourth industrial revolution is fear-inducing for people. The robots are coming, everyone's job is going, nothing's going to be relevant anymore, the skills you learned are rubbish. So it just causes fear and anxiety in people. And I believe very passionately that when people are anchored in their purpose, 
they find it easier to learn new, new things. When they know why I do what I do, what gets me excited, what gets me motivated, it gets them more open to learning new things. And future fit skill set is only built when you have an attitude of lifelong learning when you're willing to learn. So the first piece is purpose. The second piece is well-being. We ask people, what's their energy score and how are they feeling? Because again, I feel you will only build your skills when you feel well. Imagine feeling anxious and horrible and depressed and everyone's telling you, learn this and learn that and do 50 hours of this and do five hours of Coursera and 10 hours of degree. People can't take it because they don't feel so mentally and emotionally well. So the second part of the future fit plan is the ability to talk to your boss about your state of mind. The third part is to identify the one or two, three skills that you want to build. That comes from looking at the skills that are in demand for Unilever, the skills that are in demand in the world, and looking at what excites you for you to build. So it could be anything. I want to be a data analyst. I want to learn to code. I want to learn about communication skills. Doesn't matter. You put the top two or three areas, skills that you want to build. And the last piece is leadership. So leadership, you know, we have a simple model for leadership called the inner game and the outer game of leaders. But the inner game is of your sense of purpose, your resilience, your personal mastery. And your outer game is how it shows up in results, how it shows up in consumer love. So the combination of this, your sense of purpose, the skills you want to build, the energy you have, and the leadership you want to build is a future fit plan. And then you get every day or every other day, little, little bites of learning that come to you from our internal learning system called Degreed, which curates all the internal and external material so that you know what you need to learn, which is aligned to your future fit plan. You know, what I like about it, Meredith, is because it brings will and skills together. And not just skills, because you, you, you might know that, yes, you want to learn coding. Yeah, it's really important for your job. I'm making this up. But unless you have the motivation and the will to do it, you're not going to learn it. You're just going to find excuses to say that doesn't interest me. And I think our approach does the unique combination of bringing will and skills together. You know, I'm passionate about inclusion. If something drops into my mailbox, even at one o'clock in the night, and it's about inclusion, trust me, I'll wake up and read it because I'm so driven to find out more, to do more in the area of inclusion and psychological safety. So we always learn what we're interested in, what gets our hearts to sing, what gets us out of bed. That's why I think our approach is robust and is a really strong, rigorous approach. I love what you're saying about the tie-in to will as it comes as it pertains to gaining skills and also the inclusion of mental health being such a part of being able to gain skills. So I want to stay with mental health for a moment. The World Health Organization says that workplaces that promote mental health and support people with mental disorders are more likely to reduce absenteeism, increase productivity, and make economic gains. So Mental Health Awareness Day is October 10th, and I'm wondering what support does Unilever offer its people, and how has this changed since the pandemic began? We have provided huge support to our employees, to all our people everywhere. And I feel good about saying that we actually started on the journey about four or five years ago, but got accelerated with COVID as these things happened. 50,000 of our people have been through Thrive workshops where they get to talk about their physical, mental, purposeful, and emotional energy and create a plan for themselves. 
Our future fit plan, which is a plan you create every year with your boss, has legitimized the discussion on well-being. I think it's the only performance appraisal plan in the world that allows you to talk to your boss about how you're feeling. We've created tools like team energy assessment, where team can sit together and say, how am I doing? How are you doing? And create plans to support each other. We announced a global thank you day because gratitude is the foundation for good mental health. And we gave everybody a day off just to be, just to do whatever they want. We are training 3,000. Actually, we've finished training 3,000 people who have volunteered to be mental health champions and who can spot mental health challenges at the workplace. And I was so pleased that 3,000 people volunteered their time to be looking after their peers and looking after the mental health of their peers. This year, Mental Health Day will be having a massive campaign again this year because we want to ensure nobody in Unilever is more than one call, one click, one chat away from feeling well. You know, during COVID, we also learned a lot of new lessons. You know, one of the things that absolutely tears my heart is that being in confined spaces has increased bullying. So gender-based violence has gone up. This impacts women more than men, but it has impacted men as well. So we've created a program to support our employees who are going through gender-based violence or bullying in confined spaces or COVID bullying in individualized, bespoke ways. So they can put their hand up, they can find clever ways of signaling quietly that they're troubled and then we make sure they get the help they need. We are also encouraging people to move. We keep saying, let's keep moving because it's good for physical well-being. It's good for mental well-being to move. And huge focus on self-care. My CEO and I would have led calls for the whole organization at least three or four times to talk about self-care. You know, I went through a really difficult time at it in the last few months. I lost my mother to COVID and I saw my father struggling with COVID for more than 20 days. You know, I didn't know whether he'd make it. You know, my mother could make it, but my father did. And all those two or three months, I relied so much on the support that Unilever provided. So I personally experienced it, the bereavement support, the grief counseling, the ability to talk to someone about how you feel, the support from peers to step in and do the work that you could no longer do because you were completely overwhelmed, the psychological safety, the work that we're doing to make leaders create psychological safe environments where it's okay for me to say, hey, I'm not feeling well, so good today. I'm feeling quite sad today. And role modeling that as a senior leader. So because when people like me and others break the stigma around how we're feeling, you know, I pretty much cried in front of 10 or 15,000 people who were on your call that the day that I heard my mother was sick and was hospitalized with COVID. So being open and vulnerable and sharing how you feel, because we're all human after all, also changes the conversation in the business about well-being and about making it okay to say, I don't feel so good. Let's go back to the great work that Unilever is doing to combat gender-based violence. And that's not the only thing that Unilever is doing to help women in particular. In 2019, Unilever announced that it is gender-balanced across its management globally. What would you recommend that other companies do to achieve the same? I really wish I didn't have to answer it because all companies have made so much progress that we don't have to talk about gender anymore. I wish we were in that state, but it's not. You know, Unilever is a rare company that's managed to balance its management. It's a rare company. And I feel sorry about that, that in the 21st century, there are not that many examples you can talk about. But having said that, I'm hugely proud of the progress we've made. 
hugely proud. It's amazing. And when I tell you a little more about the achievements, we are balanced in almost every country we operate in. So we're between 40 to 60% women in almost every country we operate in. That includes countries where socially it's still not okay for women to work. We are ahead of social norms in every country that we operate, every country that we operate in, mostly double of the social norms. So if it's 19% corporate, we are 40% and so on and so forth. So I'm very, very proud of what we've achieved. It changes the culture, it changes the conversation. What would I tell other companies? I'd say three things. First, have leadership commitment. This needs real commitment. It doesn't come by putting posters on the wall and saying, oh, we all believe there should be a balanced world and we care about diversity. It needs real commitment. Our global diversity board is led by our CEO. It has many senior leaders on it. It needs serious commitment. We, in the top 30, 40 leaders for many years, along with their top line and bottom line targets, we held them accountable for the appointments they were making. So you've got to make sure you are pushing leadership commitment in a very, very big way. The second is we've continued to focus on numbers and culture. And you've got to work on the culture by creating a slew of progressive policies like generous maternity leave, generous paternity leave, daycare centers, wherever we can create it, job sharing facility, wherever we can create it. And we have continued to do programs like Unstereotype, which challenges the norms of what women can do and can't do. So in our advertising, we have ensured that we've challenged all the stereotypes and we've made 99% of our advertising now free of any stereotypes, which is fantastic. And the third thing is we've been very data-driven in how we've driven gender balance. One of the simple things we've done working with Iris Burnett from Harvard Business School is for our top 500 leaders, we show them a scorecard every six months, which shows their gender appointment ratio. Simple ratio, number of appointments you had the chance to make in your batch. And let's say you have a leader with 1,000 people working for you. You had a chance to maybe make 100 appointments. And it tells the ratio of how many women I appointed to the how many men I appointed. The ideal ratio is one. You should be appointing as many women as you appoint men. And no judgment here. You know, you should, This is your gender appointment ratio. This is your scorecard. And it arrives in your mailbox and tells you this is your gender appointment ratio. It forces you to go back and see. Also see what is going on. What are the biases that are coming in the way that's stopping you from making those appointments? And also it debunks many of the myths. You know, one of the myths is, ah, there are not enough women in engineering, which is complete nonsense because we have more than 2 million engineering institutes in the world and the world collectively produces close to 8 or 9 million engineers a year, out of which I guarantee you at least a couple of million are women. So please don't tell me there are no female engineers because there are more than enough female engineers in the world, You can, but you have to find them. So using data to debunk these myths that exist has also helped us a lot to make the appointments and drive our culture. So my three-point message will be tremendous leadership commitment and hold leaders accountable. Push for numbers and culture. You need to do both. You need to make appointments and you need to work on the culture. And last but not least, use data-driven ways of pushing for the right appointments and creating the right culture. I'd like to end with a question that is future looking. I've seen you allude to the fact that hierarchies shouldn't stop great things from happening. What's your prediction 
for how organizational hierarchies might change. Hierarchies are going or already gone. Today's COVID time, so many leaders have cut through hierarchy and speak to their entire organizations at one time, including our CEO, who every alternate week does a your call where he talks to the entire organization at the same time and discusses problems and business opportunities at the same time. Skills is the new currency. The more skills you gain, the more you'll get paid. It's not the vertical climb up that matters. It's the skills you build and the experiences you gain through those skills that makes you valuable to an organization. We've been experimenting with agile ways of working, where you cut through hierarchies and pick six, seven, eight of your best people to work on the problem where their skills are best suited. So again, we are seeing new ways of working that are challenging hierarchies. We're seeing reward structures that are challenging hierarchies. We're seeing new forms of communication that are challenging hierarchies. So in my mind, new power, new ways of connecting with each other is the way to go. Gone are the days when the leader at the top was a superhero or heroine, more heroes than heroines in the old world, where everybody would look up to them and say they have the answers to everything. All that's gone. Now leaders have to work with teams to say, these problems, I've never faced them. I don't know what to do. Let's make up something together. What do we do? It's co-creating together. So the culture is also changing for greater humility from leaders, allowing leaders and all other people to work together to create solutions and create big, big solutions to the big problems of our time. So coalitions are here to stay. Coalitions of people, coalitions of companies, coalitions of industries. Humility is here to stay. Leader as superhero is gone. New ways of working are here to stay. The hierarchies no longer matter. Well, Lena, thank you so much for your insights and for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on the Talent Economy Podcast. Thank you so much, Meredith. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The Talent Economy. I'm your host, Meredith Bodkiss. You can find much more information about The Talent Economy on staffing.com and toptal.com slash insights, hubs for bold, comprehensive content featuring business thought leaders and authoritative research focused on the future of work.